If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up on today's show, the last UCP leadership interview of this campaign. Travis Taves will join us. Enbridge announcing a partnership with uh, Indigenous groups yesterday. And we'll also have a conversation about intergenerational trauma and truth and reconciliation on the eve of Canada's second Truth and Reconciliation Day. Our final interview with the leadership candidates for the UCP. Of course, the winner will be announced a week from today, October the 6th. We will know who has won the leadership contest for the UCP, which means we will know who is the Premier of Alberta because they go hand in hand, right? The new leader that um, UCP members are selecting over the next few days uh, becomes leader of the party and by default also becomes Premier of Alberta, at least until we go to a new election in the spring. Uh, today, we're going to chat with Travis Taves. Uh, Mr. Taves, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, Shay. Uh, I'd like to start with a tweet that you put out earlier this week. I'll just uh, quote it. It says, when Albertans get pushed into a corner, we push back. I support my colleague Tyler Shandro's plan to protect the private property of Albertans, and I'll continue to do so as Premier. This, of course, is in response to Shandro announcing that Alberta would not agree uh, to having RCMP work on the federal gun control program. Sounds a lot like the Sovereignty Act. I know it's not exactly like the Sovereignty Act, but it's awful close, refusing to you know, have uh, federal laws enforced in our province, um, which is something you've been adamantly against. So tell me how these two realities can coexist. Yeah, this this move is very different than implementing the Sovereignty Act. I mean, this is, this is a question of enforcement priority here in the province of Alberta. Uh, we've got an agreement, of course, with the federal government around uh, policing services. And uh, crime is an issue uh, right across the province, and we need to focus our enforcement uh, where it matters, uh, where it matters to reduce crime. We, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm very opposed to um, much of federal gun legislation. I believe it does uh, infringe on personal property rights of law-abiding uh, Albertans. But this, the, what Mr. Shandro did really is is simply exercise our right uh, to direct enforcement to provincial priorities and away from those issues that will simply be a, a distraction and and will not uh, result in, in less crime. So, it, and I guess the distinction there is the Sovereignty Act, as it's known, um, would direct police not to actually enforce federal laws. At this point, this is just a request. Is that the distinction? Well, exactly. I mean, this is, again, focusing on, on priorities. We, we pay $750 million uh, to the federal government for policing, and, and the province needs to be able to direct enforcement uh, to, to priorities. And uh, certainly um, going around and, and confiscating uh, firearms uh, from law-abiding Alberta citizens is not a priority for this government. I'm very supportive of that. Um Alberta fighting with Ottawa is the dominant feature of this campaign. You know that full well. Um, and the most extreme policy so far seems to be the winning strategy, that being the Sovereignty Act. The polls show that Daniel Smith apparently is leading. Um, so 
Are you feeling pressure to move a little closer to something resembling the Sovereignty Act? Do you wish you'd stepped up the fight against Ottawa throughout your campaign more than you have? Well, I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of the Sovereignty Act. Again, for the, for the reason, I mean, I've been clear on that for the reasons I've previously stated. To implement the Sovereignty Act uh, with any teeth, uh, to implement it in a way that the originators envisioned, uh, would require Albertans and Alberta businesses to simply disregard federal law. Uh, and and that would create an environment of uncertainty and predictability, and it would have an impact on investment in the province. I, I hear that from uh, folks in the investment community. And look, Alberta wins uh, when we operate from a place of strength, fiscally, economically, and politically. Uh, implementing the Sovereignty Act will simply set us back. And and it's not going to, uh, in terms of making great gains uh, at improving Alberta's position within Confederation, uh, that that's going to simply be over-promising and under-delivering with implementing the Sovereignty Act. I mean, it's been billed as a remedy for building pipelines. It's been billed as a remedy for, you know, saying no to, uh, for instance, travel restrictions required uh, by the federal government related to COVID. Um, the Sovereignty Act, you know, simply won't accomplish, um, you know, those objectives. Nobody's going to build a, a pipeline across Canada just because the Alberta government mm-hmm. says, you know, the um, you know Federal Environmental Assessment Act no longer applies because we state it doesn't apply. That it's it's not going to deliver. Um, on its promises. It's going to create uncertainty and unpredictability, perhaps even chaos in our business environment, and has potential to unwind uh, much of the gain that we've made, many of the gains we've made over the last three years, again, economically. And I don't want to spend the whole interview talking about this. One more question and we'll move on. You're talking about teeth and over-promising and posturing and things like that. How is that different than what we heard from Tyler Shandro that you co-signed earlier this week? There's no teeth there. Uh, You're asking the government to do something, and if they say no, then maybe you'll have a legal challenge that you can stand on. So, I mean, in terms of teeth and posturing, doesn't that fit exactly what you signed on to this week? Well, well we, again, we, we have a policing services agreement uh, with, with the RCMP. Effectively, we pay $750 million. And, yeah. and we have the ability as a province to uh, direct enforcement, at least to some degree, in terms of provincial priorities. We're simply exercising that right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, in the second round of interviews with all of the candidates, I've asked all of them the same question. That's healthcare in crisis. There's a new poll out showing that's the number one, well, it's slightly behind inflation, but the number one feature for all of Canada, not just Alberta. Um, so what's the fix? And I'm not, I'm not talking about audits and restructuring and looking at AHS and re-examining the way we do healthcare in the province. I'm talking about this weekend, because you and I know there's going to be a story this weekend about somebody languishing in an ER waiting room for hours on end or waiting for an ambulance that never arrives. So what do we do now so that this weekend, if somebody needs medical help, it's there for them or, or a doc in Medicine Hat? Yeah, yeah, it, it's we, we do have a really a capacity crisis in healthcare right across the province. I would suggest felt most acutely in, in rural Alberta. And I, look, it's a complex problem, as you pointed out, Shay. It's an issue right across the country. But there's there's some things I would do immediately. I mean, number one, we have thousands of foreign-trained healthcare professionals in this province that can't find a way uh, into the system. I would immediately order a review of the credentialing criterion that are that the criterion that's used by our healthcare credentialing bodies. Right now, uh, we need to ensure that there's a safe and defensible, but an expedited path to onboard those foreign trained healthcare professionals. That's something we can do immediately. That's low hanging fruit. 
And the other thing we need to do is uh, create more training spaces uh, for those Albertans who want to pursue a career in healthcare. We started that, as I think you know, in Budget 2022, making a major investment back into our post-secondary institutions, purchasing seats in specific occupations, professions, and disciplines where we're short, many of them healthcare. We need to expand that so that we can, again, be training up enough healthcare professionals right here in Alberta. And the other thing we need to do, and you've probably heard me state this, AHS uses a highly centralized decision-making structure. That structure, um, based on dozens of conversations I've had with frontline healthcare professionals, even frontline managers for AHS, that structure is creating paralysis, it's creating massive inefficiency, it's undermining uh, you know, good, solid healthcare delivery in the province. That's something we need to take a look at immediately. Uh, we need to look at decentralizing much of the decision-making to, again, give our frontline healthcare professionals more latitude in delivering better service. Um, as I said, we're a week away from this being over and the new leader being announced. We've seen some internal polling from some of the candidates. I don't remember if you've released any of that. How do you feel about things, how the campaign's gone, and, and what your chances are now in these final days? Yeah, we, we really we feel very optimistic. Uh, we feel there's been real momentum building in my campaign. Uh, probably since early September, we certainly, you know, our internal numbers show the, show, uh, the strength and the, the momentum, and anecdotally, as I visit with Albertans, certainly feedback from our volunteers right across the province would support that. It's pretty clear it's a two-horse race between Danielle and myself, uh, based on everything we can see. Uh, we're pushing hard. I, again, I believe the province right now, our party, our movement, needs uh, a leadership uh, leadership that can, that can uh, ultimately bring strong principled and proven leadership to the province. And that's what I'm, I'm confident I can offer. And it seems like more and more conservative members are, um, you know, w- would align with that thinking. Um, last one here. Should you not become leader next Thursday, what's the plan? Do you remain committed to unity? That's what this entire exercise has been about. Um, what's the plan? Do you become a team player? Do you support the new leader? And does that mean supporting job one, day one, Sovereignty Act? I mean, where's the line in terms of being a team player and going forward as part of the UCP? Well, well, look, unity is critical, and I will continue to support the party and movement uh, and respect members' decision uh, on October 7th, fully committed to to the party and the movement and to unity. And, you know, I'll I'll work, um, as every MLA should, constructively to uh, ensure that the policy we're moving forward with as a government is uh, in the best interests of Albertans. And so I'll, you know, I'll I'll work uh, to, to that end in terms of using all my influence to get there. Uh, Mr. Taves, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Shay. Thank you. That's Travis Taves, who is um, UCP leadership candidate, MLA for Grand Prairie Wapitee. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
Right now, though, I want to talk about a major deal in the energy industry yesterday. You probably saw this in the news. Enbridge announcing that they were selling just over 11% of their interest in uh, seven Alberta pipelines to a group made up of 23 First Nations and Métis communities. Uh, It's a deal worth more than a billion dollars. The Premier says it is the biggest deal of its kind ever in North America. Uh, Greg Desjardins, the chief of the uh, Frog Lake First Nation, which is one of the communities involved, um, said this represents opportunity for Indigenous people. And he told reporters this will allow them to send their kids to school, allow them to send their people to treatment, saying this is this is the way forward. So joining us now to talk about their involvement and their thoughts on this, we have Ron Quintel, who is president of the Fort Mackay Métis. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, just tell us about this deal, your involvement. When did it come up, and, and, and why did you decide that this was something that was right for your group? Well, you know, this, the, the project itself was called Project Rocket, and that was, with, uh, that was with the intent of getting it done as quickly as we could. Uh, the project was first put in, uh, in front of us uh, earlier this year, and in a, in a span of eight months, we were, from start to finish, we were able to close this deal, which that in itself is, is, is historic. So my community being, you know, held at equal measure with the First Nations uh, uh, within, the, within the structure of the, uh, of the deal was huge for us because what it's going to present is not just just the fact that, you know, it's going to help us service our people, but the, the, the fact that, you know, it's re- really going to allow us to realize true economic reconciliation. Right, and that's a whole bunch of things I want to get into there. First of all, in terms of the economics surrounding this, it's a big investment over a billion dollars, but that's just it. It's an investment. So, so how do you look down the road what this might bring in terms of a return for you and your people? Well, I think it's not just an investment from, you know, purely uh, uh, capital and purely, uh, you know, cash dollars. It's it's really what's going to come back is how we can invest those those revenues that we receive from this opportunity into our future generations. It's going to allow us to invest in our kids. And the, the big thing from our from our perspective is that how we can use these dollars to, you know, send our kids to university, to create housing opportunities for them, you know, to, to eliminate barriers for the next generation to be able to, you know, lift, lift uh, you know, that, that that stereotypical aspect of Indigenous peoples to the next level. And the reality is, is that is exactly what it's going to do. It's going to allow us to, to uh, make, our, make our next generation the best of us. Uh, now, you mentioned it's an actual concrete example of reconciliation. There's been so much talk around this topic for the last year. Um, is this an example of the direction we need to be going, building these partnerships and actually doing something? I do. I think that this is the future of the energy industry in Canada. I think what this is is a beacon of light to other Indigenous groups around Canada, as well as, you know, Ottawa needs to really take uh, note of this, because what this is going to do is allow true reconciliation. And like I say uh, economic reconciliation because that's what it is. The Indigenous peoples, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, really want to be a part of major projects, really want to be a part of major energy infrastructure. And I think this is a clear example of how that can be achieved and what what and how that's going to translate back down to not just you know your everyday Albertan and Canadian but to every uh, indigenous pe- person in this province so you know what what's out there what what is uh, available and the fact that Alberta stepped up from a financing perspective to to work with the indigenous communities is not only unprecedented it's history making and it's realizing true uh, reconciliation for indigenous people and and we're getting some questions on the text line and, and you mentioned it the financing that's what the government role in terms of funding this is right Right? It's a loan guarantee. They're, they're backing your communities on a loan guarantee, but they're not paying for this per se. 
That's correct. So the Alberta government is, is, is simply uh, uh, essentially co-signing or ensuring that uh, this, this deal will go through. Uh, and the, the fact is, from a repayment perspective, we front-loaded this deal so that we can make sure that we're paying down the investment as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, because I think that's, that's a major aspect for not just Albertans and taxpayers when it comes to, you know, looking at the, the uh, Alberta Indigenous Operations Corporation. But what it's really going to do is allow us to pay that down quicker so that you know, the, the, the next generation, once those loans are paid down, will maximize uh, the, the, avail- the availability of revenues to be able to invest in, in, in future generations. So I think that's the really interesting part of this, uh, this deal. Uh, and the other part that I think is uh, really important, and you mentioned it earlier, and I just want to talk a bit more about it, is the fact that this has sort of the, been the goal for a while. These partnerships are sort of what you've been after for your people for a long, long time. And do you are, are you comfortable, are you confident that this maybe will serve as, like you say, uh, a template, sort of an example of this is what we're looking for and this is what can happen? Absolutely. I think it's a catalyst, if anything. I okay. think, you know, what this is going to allow... Uh, us to do is to show other indigenous communities and show governments and and to show you know energy uh, uh, energy companies that when they come into a traditional territory there are indigenous communities that want to reciprocate a relationship and uh, you know at the end of the day we just really want to make sure that you know if you're going to be developing in our territory that there's there's that these partnerships like this and you know this is exactly what needs to happen in this country especially you know when we look at trying to make sure our economy is strong trying to to make sure we're creating opportunity, trying to make sure we're creating prosperity. I think that's the real benefit here, not just to Indigenous communities, but to your everyday uh, Albertan uh, 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 here in our provinces is going to be able to really see that, you know, having the Indigenous people on side with major energy projects is going to create employment opportunities, is going to create prosperity opportunities. So it's a, it's a win-win-win when you, when you think about it, uh, you know, from, from who's going to be benefiting from this, because this is not only just the 23 Indigenous communities benefiting but because of these energy projects being able to go ahead like this it's going to also allow everyday Albertans to benefit are there other conversations happening right now that we could see more deals like this like you say this is something that you've been after for a while are those talks progressing and might we see more partnerships Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we look at this, because of the fact that this is a major asset and there's an investment opportunity here, what that does is it creates, uh, 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 you know, it creates credit, if you would, uh, for Indigenous communities to be able to use these assets potentially as collateral at some point. Should they choose to invest in other things, they can use these dollars to look at if they want to invest in in, in renewable energies, should they choose. Uh, but, you know, on a, on a go forward, I think that, you know, we, we, we are in, in talks with multiple, uh, not just energy providers, but renewable energy providers uh, to, to look at, you know, again, using this as a catalyst for other projects. So we have many opportunities in the queue, you know, and there's, there's a major pipeline at some point that's going to be coming online for the purposes of, of servicing uh, the energy sector, which is Trans Mountain. So I think this is a perfect blueprint for any government uh, to, to look at. Uh, should the numbers make sense, I think think there's a real opportunity here uh, to, to really take this thing to the next level. Ron, I really appreciate you joining us today and giving us a bit of a walkthrough. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You bet. That's Ron Kuntal, who is the president of the Fort Mackay Métis, one of the groups uh, that are involved in this partnership, or at least this purchase of uh, Enbridge Stake in seven um, different pipeline projects in Alberta. It's about 11% of Enbridge's stake.
Alberta Indigenous Investments, which is a partnership of 23 Treaty 6 and Treaty 8 First Nations and Métis communities, will manage the investment, which is an 11.57% non-operating interest in the pipelines. They say the deal is expected to bring in more than $10 million a year to the communities in that partnership. Enbridge says the assets are underpinned by long-life resources and long-term contracts, which provide highly predictable cash flows. And as you heard, uh, it's backstopped by the provincial government, the Crown Corporation uh, involved in this area, backstopping, co-signing, if you will, the financing of this deal. Tomorrow marks Canada's second National Truth and Reconciliation Day, as you know. Uh, Some of you might have the day off, some of you won't. Uh, That's another developing angle to all of this. But over the course of the last year, we have seen all kinds of stories, a lot of conversation, and one piece that keeps coming up, and I think for me anyway, one of the more interesting pieces to this is intergenerational trauma. And I think that's sort of, to start with understanding and with reconciliation, that piece makes a big, big difference. So to join us and talk about that, we have Karen Snowshoe. He was uh, principal and founder of the Gwisley Institute of Learning. If I said that right, and I probably didn't. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. Did I say that correctly? Gwisley? Uh, it's, it's actually Gwisley. Gwisley. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's spelled uh, G-W-I-Z-H-I-I. Gotcha. <clears throat> okay. wisdom in... Um, the Gwich'in language. Fair. In my old eyes, I somehow saw an L out of one of those eyes, so okay. I apologize. Um, intergenerational trauma, um, something that I think I've developed a much better understanding of over the course of the past year, and, and in doing so, it's really changed the way I view everything ar- around this conversation, because understanding intergenerational trauma and the effect that it has, that's sort of, that's the main piece of the puzzle, right? That's the fundamental piece that you have to have a grasp on. Oh, definitely. In terms of if you're looking at if you're looking at the current realities facing many indigenous communities and many indigenous peoples, you know, disproportionate rates of children in care, of people incarcerated, of addictions, of you know, XYZ, it is crucial to have an understanding of that. So the direct trauma would have began with the uh, mandatory operation of Indian residential schools. There were 109 of them operating across Canada between 1884 and 1996. And there we know uh, that there were serious abuses of children, ranging from sexual abuse to very serious physical abuse, what the Supreme Court of Canada has called cultural genocide. Um, A lot of shame generated that generated from that around identity, around abuse. And of course, a lot of um, learned a survival, uh, trauma survival responses that were then passed on from generations to generations. Okay. And that's the consideration because I think we can all understand, okay, if you were in that situation and it was, you know, being inflicted upon you, the trauma is obvious. We understand that. But there's a lot of people that say, you know, that was 50 years ago. But how does it translate from one generation to the next? Oh, it's huge. It could be an example of um, 
uh, patterns of addictions. Say, for example, if uh, people who had experienced direct trauma were then uh, perhaps out of the shame of abuse or whatever uh, feelings they were expressing, turn to a substance, right, to help numb those, those feelings. Many children and grandchildren would feel the impacts of that in terms of a parent or grandparent simply not being fully present, if that makes sense, right? right. And then, uh, of course, those, those patterns can be passed on in terms of um, learned uh, behaviors as well. Another one that we see quite often is <clears throat> because children uh, attending Indian residential schools, there's often a lack of emotional care, right? emotional care or physical demonstration of caring and love, like maybe a, a hug, a sense of encouragement. And maybe because the survivors of direct trauma at Indian residential schools may have been physically abused, they may have been sexual abuse and therefore in terms of how they've end up and I say they including my own family my my grandmother was the first generation to go to residential school so if I look at what I experienced was definitely there was a lack of ability with my grandmother and then passing on to my mother of <clears throat> sort of the, the the hugging and the encouragement and maybe the emotional um, the emotional part of being supportive of uh, a child another one that plays out quite significantly across communities is hypervigilance, hyper right? Mm -hmm. So if, if somebody had been abused, then it's often quite what happens. They become hypervigilant over their own children. So it may come across as maybe overbearing, or, uh, but really it is a hypervigilance over not wanting anyone to harm their own children. And then we see that play out in so many ways in society. And once you sort of understand where it's coming from, you can see how it's causing so many issues for us now, right? Oh, it's, it's huge, because anytime you're dealing with trauma that is not yet healed, there are going to be issues. And I really like the way that you phrased it in terms of, well, this, this was historical. This happened uh, so long ago. But what you have to keep in mind is that the last Indian residential school, the last two didn't close till 1996. One was in the Northwest Territories in Inuvik, and the other was in Saskatchewan. So you've got people now in their 40s who are quite young, relatively, right, mm -hmm. who, are, who, who experienced all the direct impacts. So I guess this is all to say that the uh, people who uh, experience direct impacts and generational trauma are still struggling with that. And that is one of the many legacies of of Indian residential schools. And again, it's all alive here today. And I think um, in our communities um, experienced by Indigenous peoples who have, who have those connections to community and to family who have been in, in attendance. So is it a cycle? I mean, it sounds like a cycle. It, it, it's, it's, it continues generation to generation to generation, um, and it's almost cyclical. And we always hear talk about end the cycle, break the cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what I'm uh, aimed at doing. I'm trained as a lawyer, mediator, arbitrator, and the reason I decided to found the Guiji Institute of Learning is really to look at how do we break those cycles. So a lot of the workshops, I work with organizations, different level of governments. It's really around understanding exactly what you've been asking today, Ex really gaining an understanding yeah. of but what we do is we go through a journey of three generations of indigenous women there you see in a very concrete way 
you know, from not the early 1920s to today, what the impacts have been, what the generational impacts have been, and also what the resiliency has been, right? And then from then, I think once people realize just how prevalent trauma is, that it's not just something that Indigenous peoples are facing, it, it touches people and it opens their hearts in terms of why this is so tied into reconciliation, right? And why it's tied into, I, I think, more of the collective healing of um, of our nations. But that's what we aim to do in our workshops is really create an understanding. And we really um, base it in the science of the physiology of how trauma impacts the body and the brain, because that is universal. People may experience different types of trauma, different types of generational trauma, but the way that those traumas and generational trauma show up in people's lives physiologically uh, in the brain and the body is pretty much universal. And I think that's something that creates a lot of buy-in for the public because then... Yeah, help help me with that. What ways? Give us an example of what what is a typical physiological response to trauma. Well, uh, triggers, for example. So if you look at maybe somebody... um, You know, I've worked with people who've... uh, Young soldiers who've come back from Kandahar in the... um, um, you know, say around 2009, and the triggers from exactly from witnessing abuse, witnessing abuse, um, from maybe uh, uh, being in the middle of crossfire, has created longer-term post-traumatic stress effects. So that a soldier, say for example, who is just uh, has returned and is now um, a veteran, might be minding her own business walking down the street and all of a sudden um a tire a tire fires or a tire blows right Mm. that person physiologically in that moment would be triggered and taken back to the original trauma right so they are now no longer present in the here now they are back in time um, with experiencing the very um fight or flight symptoms that they would have experienced back then so that's something very similar. Here's an example. So remember the Pope's visit, right? That could have been very triggering for people. Yeah, we heard about that. Yeah. yeah, And when I talk to lawyers, for example, I say when you're working with Indigenous peoples who most likely are experiencing generational uh, impacts of generational trauma, right? You have to be aware of triggers. And that's where the trauma-informed nature comes in. So for example, um, if you're working with them, try not to wear black, white, or gray, because if they attended Indian residential school, it's very likely that their abuser would have been wearing those colors. Do you see what I mean? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I hear you. Yeah. It's fascinating, and and like I said, I think it's it's that foundational piece, Karen. So uh, such important work, and I thank you for coming on today and and sharing some of your work with us. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Shay. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you. That's Karen Snowshoe, uh, who is the principal and founder of the Guiji Institute of Learning. And as we said, tomorrow is Canada's second annual um, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.